Indeed, dear friends, as we have sung, Jesus has promised to receive us. Though we are poor and sinful, Jesus has promised to receive us and to relieve us and to cleanse us and to make us free. What a promise this is. What a blessing this is. And as we have sung this song, I pray that we would meditate upon the, heart, on, upon the lyrics of this promise that Jesus has made as we have sung it. If we would come to him, Jesus would receive us. Jesus would relieve us. Jesus would free us and cleanse us. This morning, we want to look at the theme of no other God. Would you open God's word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 46 and 47. God's word is found on page 607 in the Pew Bibles, in the Bibles provided in chairs in front of you. We are looking at this passage that uh, the prophet Isaiah bring, brought to his people and brings to us this morning. If you are with us for the first time, we are working our way through the book of Isaiah. And as a matter of fact, last week we're in Isaiah 5, uh, 45, and the theme in Isaiah 45 was the same, no other God. This morning, we're continuing this basic theme for the second time, second Sunday in a row. Here's God's word for us this morning. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you, stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, 
for Israel my glory. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence. And go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which, we, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Amen. This is God's word for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word? Lord God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We praise you that you have spoken to us. You have spoken to the stubbornness of our own hearts. Father, we pray that you would speak to us once again now through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes. We 
pray that you would bring from death those who are still dead in their sins. We pray that through the power of your word and through the presence of your Holy Spirit, you would exalt yourself, that you would help us see that you alone are the only true God. We pray that you would speak to us in the name of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, as we approach this passage, if you were with us last week, you remember that last week we looked at this theme of no other God. A very basic theme, we might say, especially if we've grown up in church, if we have learned Sunday school lessons, we do not need any more sermons to tell us. We don't need more lessons to tell us there's no other God. If you have grown up in church, this truth should ring a bell and should be, uh, should be just a, a sweet, a sweet recovery or a sweet uh, 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 remembrance um, of a, a truth we have learned so many times for such a long time. And yet, this truth, amazingly, is not only stated to the people of God in the Old Testament, but it's repeated. Not just once. Not just for one chapter, but for more chapters. And as I prepare this passage in, in chapters 45, 46, and 47, I thought to myself, why? Why is God bringing this truth over and over and over and over again to the very people who are supposed to know it for a long time? Chapter 45, verse 22, God says, turn to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Now, we would expect God's people to grow in enthusiasm and hope and expectation for their deliverance. God had told them in chapter 45 that he is sending or raising up a Persian king who would come and bring deliverance. In chapter 45, God's people were warned not to grumble against their maker because God was planning to free them by, by a Persian king. In chapter 46, we see that God's people did not take to heart God's encouragement and God's warning not to grumble against their maker. In chapter 46, God's people are described as transgressors, as stubborn of heart, as those who are far from righteousness. Look at chapter 46, verse 8. Remember this, and stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Look also at verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. God is speaking here to his own people, to the remnant, to those whom he speaks about taking into exile, whom God plans to save. God is addressing them as transgressors. God is addressing them as stubborn of heart. Oh, friends, the people of Judah are continuing the path of stubbornness of heart, of wickedness, of being far from righteousness. This is the state of the people of God when he addresses them in these chapters. Even though God has told them ahead earlier, there is no other God. These people continue to to stay stubborn in their ways, in their hearts. 
So what does God aim to accomplish through these two chapters, chapter 46 and 47? If we compare these chapters, we notice that they are written to two different audiences. The chapter 46 is written to or addressed to the exiles of Judah, to the remnant of the people of Israel. And chapter 47 is written to or for the people of Babylon. And yet, as, as these two chapters are put next to each other, there is a common theme that runs through both. God wants to imprint in the minds and hearts of the people there is no other God. Once again, God wants to imprint, God wants to, to forge upon their hearts, not just about their information, God wants to forge upon their hearts this truth that there's no other God. Now you would think that chapter 45 was enough to get this word across. But apparently it wasn't. Chapter 46 and chapter 47 continue this theme again to, de- to, to drive it home into the hearts of God's people. There is no other God. We should not be amazed that God rings this truth and repeats this truth over and over again. If we know our own hearts, we too forget the message that there is only one God. We too forget the message that there's no other God besides God. Our hearts, if we think carefully, our hearts so easily embrace other substitute gods. Our thinking reasons in ways that shows that we place our confidence, we place our aspirations, we place our hopes, we place our, our significance our worth in something other than God. So this morning, we're looking again at this theme, No Other God, Part 2. As we look at these two chapters, we're going to see two major parts. First one is, as this theme is being developed, No Other God, we're going to see in, first, in point one, why compare God with idols? Why compare God with idols? In point two, idol worshipers will perish. Idol worshipers will perish. Let's look at chapter 46, the first point. Why compare God with idols? Chapter 46 begins by talking about Bel and Nebo. Do you know who Bel and Nebo are? Neither did I know before this week. These two names were names of the chief idols of Babylon. If you had lived 2,500 years ago in Babylon, Bel and Nebo were very, very, very common knowledge because they were the chief gods of Babylon. Bel was the primary god of the city of Babylon, and Nebo was a god of wisdom in Babylon. You get a sense of how important these names and these gods were in Babylon by the fact that both of their names were used as part of the names of the kings of Babylon, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, 
In other words, the very kings of, these, of this vampire would call themselves, would name themselves by putting the name of these gods as the beginning and then just adding some more to create their name. That's how important, that's how significant these gods were for the Babylonian Empire. Everyone in Babylon worshipped Bel and Nebo. If you had lived in Babylon at that time, Bel and Nebo were the most popular gods. But Isaiah begins chapter 46 with an interesting description, speaking about the most popular gods at that time, Bel and Nebo. And Isaiah presents them as if uh, he imagines this, this caravan where the, the, the gods of Bel and Nebo are, are carried on through, through a parade. And, ba- and Isaiah describes them as not being able to carry themselves and needing others to carry these statues. And Isaiah presents them in chapter 46 as gods who not only need to be carried by animals, wearing the animals, but they cannot save, protect, neither themselves nor the worshippers. In contrast to these two popular idols of Babylon that need to be carried by others, God presents himself. And how does God present himself in comparison with the idols of Nebo and, and, and Bel? Here's what God says about himself in comparison to the idols. If idols need others to carry them, God is very different in this. God is the one who carries his people. Look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. In other words, God declares to his people that it is he who has carried his people from the very beginnings. God's act of carrying his people was not only in the past, but it's for the future as well. Look at verse 4, a wonderful promise. Even even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. My friends, let this promise sink in. God promises to carry his people even through their old age, even through retirement, even through the season when their lives no longer physically, are no longer able to carry themselves. When they will need something to help them walk. When they will need others to assist them. God says, I will assist you. I will carry you. Even then, God will carry his people, even in old age. Friend, I wonder if you're anxious about your retirement. Or about your old age. Some people wonder if Social Security will make it by the time they will get old. Some people wonder if they'll have enough savings for retirement. Some wonder if they'll they'll be able to make it through retirement. All the saints, I wonder, I wonder if you have anxieties about, about the stage of life you're in. I wonder if you knew this promise that God gives to his people, that even in old age, God commits to carry his people. 
Consider the following promises God makes elsewhere in the Bible about, this, about carrying His people. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord, who daily, daily bears us up. God is our salvation. 1 Peter 5, 7. Peter describes God casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. One of the distinctions between idols and the real God is that idols, we need to carry them. But the real God says He carries us. God asks His people in verse 5, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Friends, this is what happens when we make idols in our own hearts. It begins with comparing God with something else. And we often find something else to be not only equal with God, but perhaps even better than God. We compare God with something else whenever we find something else to be more worthy of pursuit than pursuing God. We compare God with something else when we choose something else, whatever that may be, in the place of God. For some people, their professional growth is more important than pursuing God. For others, obtaining financial peace or security is more important than pursuing God. For some people, they may even delay pursuing God until they accomplish certain goals, certain idols that they worship. Friends, God knows that we have a tendency to compare Him with something else. That's why He asks, to whom will you compare me? To whom will you liken me? is Is it another person? Is it a particular aspiration? Is there a particular achievement, a particular hope and dream that as long as you get there, you will really make it? That's what life is about? Friends, that's why God is asking, to whom will you liken me and make me equal? In verses 6 and 7, God describes how others make gods out of silver and gold. Now, in verses 6 and 7, God speaks about people who take out money out of their purse, take out gold and silver out of their purse and take it to goldsmith to make an idol out of them. Now, gold and silver are not bad things. They're valuable things. They become bad when we turn them into an idol. They become bad when we take something that's, that's valuable, but we put on it and we use it as a substitute for God. It's one, it becomes bad. It's not that gold and silver are evil. It's that they become so when we turn them into idols. In verse 7, we see God's mockery of idols. God says in verse 7, It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. This is a big comparison that God brings between himself and the idols. Idols can neither move on their own, nor can they answer, nor can they save people from their troubles. Oh, friends, whatever idol you and I 
might be lured to worship, whether it's the idol of education, or of relationships, or of work, or of materialism, or of human approval, or of self-image, whatever else we place above God in our lives. God wants you and I to know that such man-made idols can neither hear us, even if those idols are human beings. They cannot really hear us, nor can they save us. No, much, no matter how much attention we give them. And notice another characteristic of the true God. He is not only saying that He is a God who is able to carry His people, to care for His people and to carry His people even to the old age. Another characteristic of God is that He is able to accomplish all His purposes. Look at verse 10. My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. In verse 11, God speaks about calling a bird of prey from the east. Now this is likely a reference to King Cyrus. God declares that he is able to accomplish his purposes even when, even when, God's people don't like the ways God uses. King Cyrus was a means that God used to free his people, but the people of God were not excited to hear that a Persian king is a means by which God is freeing his people. God, friends, oftentimes works in ways that don't match well with what we expect from God. I love the words of an old hymn. We have not sung this hymn here, but I'd like to introduce it at some point. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, hides a smiling face. What differentiates a true God from idols is that God accomplishes His purposes, all of them. Not one of His purposes fails. God says in verse 11, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is what differentiates gods from idols. God is able to accomplish everything that He purposes. Now, we often test God by seeing if He can accomplish what we want and what we purpose. But God never promised that. And that's never a sure proof of God's existence. Rather, God will accomplish all that He declares. That's why, dear friends, it's so important for us to incline our ears to hear well what God says. Did you notice in this chapter that all the commands given in chapter 46 are related to hearing or remembering what God had said. In verse 3, listen. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. In verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. In verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart. If we want to understand what God is doing, what God is purposing, we must incline our ears not to our wishes, 
not to our plans, not to our purposes, but to what God says, to what God purposes. Friends, the stubbornness of our own hearts is manifested in that we refuse to do a very basic act, to listen, to listen to God. We prefer to go on with our plans, with our purposes. And God says in chapter 46, listen, listen, stop and listen to what I am saying. God never promised to accomplish our purposes. God never promised to accomplish our wishes. God promised to accomplish His purposes. And His purposes will never fail, not one of them, even when He brings birds of prey. Not one of God's purposes will fail. The third area of comparison with idols that God brings us is that God alone is able to save. God alone is able to save. Remember how chapter 46 started with a picture of the Babylonian gods of Bel and Nebo. One of the characteristics of these gods is not only that they cannot carry themselves, not only that they cannot hear, but they cannot save. And the same truth is repeated in verse 7. It, the idol, cannot move from its place. It, if one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. Idols cannot save their worshipers. They cannot save them out of their trouble. But this is precisely how God wants to be different and is different. God says in verse 4, not only that he carries his people, but that he saves them. Look at verse 4 again. I have made, I will bear, I will carry and I will save. You would expect that by now God's people embrace these truths, but they didn't. They didn't. In verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, who are far from righteousness. So God declares to them in verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Oh, friends, despite the stubbornness of God's people, God still promises to bring salvation. This is amazing. This is what's amazing about God. Despite the stubbornness of His people, God promises to bring salvation. Not because God's people deserve it, because they don't. It's because God is a God able to save, and He has purpose to save His people. This is what differentiates God from idols. If we read the rest of the Bible we find out that God's purpose is actually to save a people from himself, from all nations and all tribes and all peoples of the earth. Why? Because God alone is able to save not only his people in the Old Testament, but also from among the nations, a new people of God who, who will form one large people of God. Notice what God promises in verse 13. He promises to put his salvation where? in Zion. This is a reference to the city of Jerusalem. This reference foreshadows why it is important for Jerusalem to be rebuilt in the Old Testament. Because a Savior will come to the city of Jerusalem. And friends, it is not the modern rebuilding of the temple that we are looking for in Israel today. That is not what we're re-looking for. 
It is what God has done when he sent Jesus 2,000 years ago. It was, it was important for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and to be killed there, to be crucified there, and on the third day to be raised from the dead there. Why? Because God promised in Isaiah that he will put his salvation in Jerusalem. In this text, Isaiah does not give us the details of what God's salvation will be. We only need to, to be looking ahead at, at chapter 53 to realize that God's salvation will be provided through a servant that God sends. And that servant will take upon himself the, the wounds, upon his wounds, the sins of God's people. It's interesting that in this passage, God says, I will put my righteousness or I will bring near my righteousness. God is not waiting for the righteousness of his people to rise up from among them. No, he says, I am bringing near my righteousness. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 21, the apostle Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been made up manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Oh, dear friend, the righteousness that God promises to bring near is not the righteousness of his people. It's his righteousness. And this righteousness is being brought to his people through Jesus. And this righteousness becomes the righteousness of God's people when God's people place their faith in Jesus. God brings an alien righteousness. A righteousness from outside God's people brings him to his people through faith. In Jesus Christ. Oh, dear friend, I wonder if you have ever placed your trust on the righteousness that God promised to bring near to his people through Jesus. God has indeed fulfilled his promise to bring his righteousness near to us. And he's able to give us his righteousness to count it on our behalf, even though it's not ours, to count it on our behalf by merely placing our trust in Jesus. Let me ask you this morning a question. Have you ever, have you ever asked God to save you? To give you this salvation, this righteousness that it's not yours, that comes from outside and God brings near? If you have not asked God to save you, I plead with you today that you would do so. God is pleading with you, and God is pleading with the ends of the earth. God said in chapter 45, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. In your own heart, my dear friend, if you have not turned to the Lord, if you have not asked God to save you, I plead with you, ask him, even now, as you hear these words, turn to God. God can bring his salvation near to you, and give it to you. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Or if you prefer, I encourage you to talk to another Christian who is a member of this congregation. But don't go away from this place without the righteousness that God has promised to bring to his people. Some people wonder, now why do we need to be saved? Why would I worry about it? Should I, can I just continue in my own ways? Why worry about God's salvation? Well, here's 
point number two in our passage because idol worshippers will perish idol worshippers will perish and this is the point of chapter 47 if chapter 46 began speaking about Babylon's idols chapter 47 speaks about Babylon's destruction even though this message is for Babylon it was important for God's people to hear what God would speak to Babylon as we look at this chapter chapter 47 it's helpful to remember that in the Bible Babylon refers not only to one city in ancient times it also serves as a symbol of humanity's rebellion against God the beginning of the Bible begins with the appearance of of Babel which is the the ancient city before the ancient city of Babylon Babel is where it all started in Genesis 11 it was a city in which human power mounted up trying to live life apart from God and try to reach heaven on their own abilities at the end of the Bible the last few chapters of the book of Revelation we see Babylon appearing again there it's a symbol clearly symbol of what humanity is trying to do apart from God so far in Isaiah we have seen already two oracles of judgment against Babylon in chapters 13 and 14 and then a second oracle of judgment in chapter 21 and now we see a third uh, oracle of judgment in this passage in chapter 47 it's important however to see how this chapter 47 ends this is where it's driving verse 15 they wander about each in his own direction there's no one to save you Babylon thought that she did, does not need God Babylon thought there's no reason for trying to pursue the true God the only true God she thought that all she needed was herself her wisdom and knowledge her self-made religion well here are the characteristics that describe Babylon notice what God brings out about Babylon Babylon mistreated God's people even though it was God who who gave his people into exile Babylon's burden was too heavy on God's people we see that in verse 6 in verse 8 Babylon was a lover of pleasures and had a false sense of security look at verse 8 now therefore hear this you lover of pleasures who sits securely a false sense of security always goes hand in hand with self-indulgence my dear friends because we think we are secure that nothing can oppose us we give free reign to live our lives based upon our pleasure oh dear friend how many even today live with such a false sense of security in themselves and therefore they live life to fulfill their pleasures Babylon also refuses to think that she will give an account to anyone in verse 8 she says you who say in your own heart I am and there's no one besides me did you hear that that's Babylon's heart there's no one's besides me in other words I don't have to give an account to anyone no one else matters but me no one else can challenge me oh how often the spirit of Babylon is still with us today it shows up whenever we feel or live 
as if we have no one to give an account to. Babylon was confident also in her future security. Look at verse 8. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Now in ancient times, especially, especially in ancient times, to lose one's spouse and one's children was to lose one's future security. She thinks she can protect her future security by saying, I'm not going to be a widow. I'm not going to lose my children. I'll be secure. Babylon also felt secure in her wickedness. Look at verse 10. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Friends, just because we feel confident and sure and secure in our own sinful ways does not mean that no one can see us. does not mean that we are not secure. Here God exposes Babylon's false security in her wickedness. Friends, our impression about our security is not sufficient. Babylon also felt secure in her wisdom and knowledge. Look at verse 10 again. Your wisdom, your knowledge led you astray. The very thing that Babylon esteemed the most, the god Nebo, whom they worshipped, the god of wisdom, the very thing Babylon esteemed the most are the very means by which she was led astray because she had substituted that wisdom and that knowledge for God. We rarely want to question whether or not our wisdom and knowledge lead us correctly. We assume that our wisdom and knowledge always lead us correctly. Right? How often? How often have you questioned, is it possible that the way I'm thinking may lead me astray? We often think that the way other people tell us to think, the way someone else other than ourselves tells us to, to live life, that must be the wrong way. I got the good way of thinking how to live. Well, friends, reason, self-reason, self-wisdom can lead us astray. Here God exposes that all of Babylon's wisdom and knowledge has actually misled Babylon. And the last characteristic about Babylon, and this is the final of it all, she put herself in the place of God. Look at verse 10 again. And you say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Now this is the second time this phrase shows up. Why would God expose this phrase twice? Because in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, this is how God presented himself. God has been saying throughout the book of Isaiah, there's no one besides me. There's no other God besides me. Now Babylon takes that phrase and applies it to herself. She makes herself to be a God substitute. A pastor once asked, where did the fall of Babylon begin? It wasn't when the armies of Cyrus appeared on the horizon. It began much earlier than that. It began in their thoughts. They said something in their hearts. And God heard every word. What did they say? I am. And there is no one besides me. That's when the beginning of the destruction of Babylon started. But God says all of her sense of security, all of her self-indulgence, all of her, her self-centered life 
is short-lived. It's a short-lived delusion. Look at verse 9. These two things shall come upon you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. In other words, despite Babylon's great resourcefulness, despite her confidence in her security, despite her wisdom and knowledge, despite her man-made religion, she will not be able to resist the destruction that God plans against her. Or so, in verses 11 through 14, God encourages her to continue to rely on her false religion, to continue to rely on her false counselors, and to see if they can help. And chapter 47 ends with these words, There's no one to save you. I love how one Bible interpreter summarized all that God will do to Babylon. He said, The queen of kingdoms will sit in the dust. The pampered city will become a slave. The mother will suddenly be widowed and bereaved. And the witch will find that her spells do not work. And more, and all her masters of magic will be powerless to save her. In short, her sense of impregnability is a complete illusion. She's like the man who built his house on the sand. Or like the rich man who did not reckon on what the night would bring. Babylon is a city of destruction. And oh dear friends, all you need to do is to turn to the Revelation chapter 18 to see that the Apostle John uses words, the very words from, Revelation, from Isaiah 47 to describe Babylon in, chapter, in Revelation 18. Here's how John says it. And she, about Babylon in, in Revelation, and she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, he, God, plagues her. Her, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Oh, dear friends, Babylon is not just about an ancient city. Babylon is about a spirit of our age. Babylon is about a, a framework of thinking. When we attach our hearts to idols, to ourselves, when we think and live as if we are it and there's no one else besides us to tell us how to live, how to think, what to do, why do we need to turn to God? And ask God to save us. Because if we don't, there's nothing else that we can turn to to save us. By living our lives as if we don't need God. As if we are our own gods. As if we can make up whatever gods we want to live for. By living that way, we surely live with the spirit of Babylon in us. Friends, in these two chapters, God exposed the helplessness of Babylon's idols. And concluded with exposing Babylon's destruction. Idolatry, dear friends, is dangerous because it affects the way we think. It affects the way we feel. It affects the way we reason. It affects the way we act. When we worship the other idols, we don't often realize it. Our idolatry is often a matter of how we interpret reality, how we reason, what we prioritize, what we find our security and our safety in. 
Why compare God with idols? Idol worshipers will perish. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, would you help us to see our own hearts how often, O Lord, we are stubborn of heart. How often, O Lord, we are like the people of old, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, who although they have known your truth, although they have had your revelation, although they have known with their minds that there is no other God besides you in their hearts, in their affections, they have indeed compared you with other idols and have pursued them. Oh Lord, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us for going to other idols to carry us? Would you forgive us for going to other idols to, to protect us, to find significance, to find worth, to find purpose, to find meaning? Lord, you alone are the God who promised to carry us. You alone are the God who promised to save us. Would you bind our hearts back to you? Would you help us to worship you and you alone? Would you help us to ask of you to save us? Save us from our idols. Save us from our idolatries. May we be a people who are faithful to you and worship you and you alone. No other God. In the name of Jesus we pray.